It has been a great joy to spend this weekend with you, a real, real encouragement. Um, you have something very exciting, I think, happening at SWEC. Uh, you guys have a great community, and I've been super encouraged, actually, when uh, I've spoken to a number of you about um, what brought you to SWEC. Uh, it was a desire to grow. Um, and a number of you have commented that this is the place where you feel God is really growing you and encouraging you. And um, that's wonderful. That's, that's, that's really, as we've seen, I guess, what, what, uh, how church should work. Um, so, uh, so we praise God for that. Um, we've been thinking a bit about these images of the church. Uh, we've thought about our, the, the fact that the church is, is shown to be a, a temple, um, which highlights, I guess, our relationship with God. Uh, we are a body, uh, which highlights our relationship with one another. But today we think about uh, this idea of the church as a priesthood, which highlights our relationship with the world, those outside our community. And it's, it's perhaps a, an image of the church that we don't think about uh, quite so much. But it's, it's really important, I think, as we try to understand what does it mean for us to be the church in this world which seems to be increasingly hostile to the message of Jesus. Uh, over the last couple of years, I'm sure you've heard, I think there's been a, a, a sort of talk about the fact that, that Christians in Australia uh, are viewed very differently. Now, some people use the, the language of persecution, which I, I, I must say I'm not really comfortable with. I think our brothers and sisters in North Korea, they're persecuted. Uh, in Pakistan, as I spoke about, they face persecution. I think what we face is we face people just not agreeing with us. Uh, but it's still uncomfortable. Yeah, we, we do have lots of people around us who just don't have a lot of respect for our perspective. And as Grant shared yesterday, um, to most of our non-Christian friends, the message of Jesus just sounds weird. It's just weird. Um, so we do have this opposition, and it manifests in all different sorts of ways. Now, one recent example is, uh, is from this magazine called White Bridal Magazine. I don't know, does anyone know about this? So this is a magazine that was started 12 years ago by a Christian couple who love all things wedding. Um, and, uh, and so they've, you know, a very successful magazine for a long time. But with the, with the same-sex marriage uh, change in legislation, uh, there were lots of people who were saying, why don't you have same-sex couples in your magazine? When are you going to show same-sex couples? Uh, and, uh, and they just didn't feel comfortable doing it. They, didn't, they weren't opposed to same-sex marriage, not, not openly, but they didn't want to include same-sex couples in their magazine. And so everybody boycotted them. And so now their magazine has gone out of business because they can't function uh, with those convictions in our society anymore. I think that's just a picture of what, how Christians are viewed there's a sort of low-level hostility because people just don't understand us. We don't make sense anymore. Um, it's not always about issues of morality. I think essentially it's just about we submit to a Lord who has different values and priorities to the values and priorities of the world that we find ourselves in. So how do we live in that world? What does it look like for us to be the church in this hostile world. Well, this is where I love the letter of 1 Peter, because I think 1 Peter is written to Christians who live in a hostile world, a world in which they don't belong. In the first verse of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he, uh, 
he introduces this idea, I guess. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Exiles scattered. In the HCSB, it says, to the temporary residents dispersed. We are temporary residents. We don't belong here, in a sense. When we're trusting in Jesus, then heaven becomes our home. We're citizens of God's country, as we talked about uh, yesterday. Uh, this is not our home, but God has us here for a very important purpose. And that's what Peter wants to help us understand. This isn't our home, but we are here for a reason. And he does that in this passage we're looking at by highlighting two things. First of all, he helps us to think about our identity, who we are in the world. And then secondly, our purpose, why we are here. Who we are and why we are here. You see, the fact is that being a follower of Jesus transforms us completely. It's not just about wearing a different label. We completely become different people. And, uh, and Peter highlights that in this, in this passage that we just had read by showing the way that we actually become part of Christ. He's sort of talking about our union with Christ, I guess, by using these images. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, this is in verse 4, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Do you hear all that identity language? He's saying Jesus is the, the living stone because he has risen from the dead, he's conquered death. But as you trust in him, you too become like living stones. Just as Jesus was rejected by humans... You too, we too are rejected by humans. We should expect that we won't be respected and celebrated because we align ourselves with one who was rejected. Just as he is the chosen, precious one, so we too are chosen and precious. And just as Jesus is the great high priest who is able to open the way for us to come into relationship with God, so we are a holy priesthood. That's who we are. We are a holy priesthood. That is an amazing privilege when you think about what it means to be a priest. I often take students, uh, when we're learning about other religions, to a Hindu temple. There's a couple of Hindu temples around, one in Westmead. Um, uh, there's one uh, little one that's under construction in Flemington. And we go there and, and we meet the Hindu priest. And everything about a Hindu priest tells you that they are not like everybody else in the temple. They dress completely differently. They have coloured powders on their forehead. Uh, they do rituals that no one else does. They speak in a language that most people can't understand. They go into the middle of the shrine where no one else is allowed to go. There's signs that say, only priests beyond this point. To be a priest is an amazing privilege. It's obvious when we see that. And, and that's what it was like in God's temple too. 
It was only the priests who could go into the Holy of Holies. It was only the priests that could offer the sacrifices. But in Christ, we are a holy priesthood. We become God's priests. Peter elaborates on this in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The amazing thing about this verse here is where Peter has got these words from. Right, these words are pretty much taken straight out of Exodus chapter 19. When the nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai and Moses went up to God to get the law, this is what God said to Moses. He said, you are to say these words to the nation of Israel. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Hear that special possession language. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God was saying to Israel was, I am the creator of all nations. The whole earth is mine. But I'm going to choose you, not because you're particularly impressive, but I'm going to choose you to be my priests, to be my representatives on earth. Now, what Peter is saying is that when you come to Christ, you are now God's holy priesthood. No longer is it defined by your nationality. No longer do you have to be an Israelite. Anybody trusting in Christ is now part of this chosen people, this special possession. God's set-apart people. He says it again in verse 10. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, we've been completely transformed. We have this new identity, God's holy priesthood. It's an amazing privilege. Next February, I celebrate my 20th wedding anniversary. That shows how old I am. Um, or how young I got married. I was like 12 or something. Anyway. Um, <laughs> And when I met my, uh, my wife's family, my now in-laws, I realised that they were fairly formal people. They liked to be addressed properly. So whereas a lot of my other friends' parents, I would refer to them by their first name, they were always Mr and Mrs Spring. And when, uh, it was, when it came time for me to ask Peggy to marry me, I asked Mr Spring, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And he, yes, he agreed, which was nice. But as we got closer to the wedding, um, Peggy kind of realised that this was a little, getting a little bit weird. Like, I was soon going to be part of the family. I couldn't call them Mr and Mrs Spring forever, so she had a little word to them. And then we sat down and had a conversation about it, and they said, we've thought about it, and we'd like you to call us Mum and Dad. And I was a little bit shocked. I guess I was expecting them to invite me to use their first names. But instead, they were saying, you're part of our family now. And so still, they're mum and dad. Because I'm no longer just a Silberman, I'm part of the Spring family as well. It's a new identity, an amazing privilege. 
When we come to Christ, God says, you are my special possession. You are my chosen nation. You are my holy priesthood. Now, this is something that all of the images that we've looked at this weekend kind of highlight. The privilege of being included in Christ. We are God's temple, God's body, God's priesthood. It's no longer dependent on our nationality. It's not dependent on what we wear. It's not dependent on what we do. It's simply dependent on Christ. We need to let our identity shape how we live, shape how we relate to God, how we relate to each other, and, as the priesthood highlights, how we relate to the world. Because what does a royal priesthood do? Our identity might be to be a priesthood. That's who we are. But why? Well, we have a new purpose. You see, uh, all religions, all ancient religions have priests, right? We talked about Hindu priests before, but if you see uh, shamanistic religions, they also have priests. Uh, and the, the, what's the job of a priest, basically? What's the job of a priest? Not a rhetorical question. Sorry? To see. Intercede. Thank you. Yes, to intercede. That's right. They're a go-between. Right? The priest goes between the divine and humanity. They're a bridge. And so when God says to us, you are my holy priesthood, then he's saying, you are my bridge. You are my mediators. That was the role of Israel, right? All nations were gods, but he said to Israel, you are to be my royal priesthood. You are to mediate between me and all the other nations. Now, how was Israel to do that? Well, they were to do it by being a holy priesthood, a holy nation, sorry, a kingdom of priests. If they were holy, if they obeyed God's law, if they kept to God's covenant then all the nations around them would be able to learn something about God by looking at them. You see, they would see people relating to the God of the universe. They would see God's justice. They would see God's mercy. They would see God's kindness and love. They would see God lived out in community. That was the ideal for the nation of Israel. But sadly, Israel didn't do that, did they? Israel didn't obey God. Israel didn't hold to God's covenant. Rather, as the prophet Ezekiel says, they profaned God's name among the nations. They didn't, make, they didn't help the nations see how good God was. Rather, they obscured God's glory in their disobedience. But in Christ, we have been set free from that sin. We are set free to be able to live out what it means to be God's people. As his royal priesthood, now we are able to show people what God is like. We are able to point people to the ultimate priest, the only one who has opened the way for relationship with God. You see, that's what it is to be a royal priesthood. We are to mediate between those who don't know God and God. God. 
We are to point people to Jesus so that they might find him and find salvation, so that they might know who God is. That is who we are. And so it's not surprising then that after Jesus' resurrection, he gives us a command to effectively be God's priests. We know it as the Great Commission. Jesus came to his disciples, Matthew 28, and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. For surely I am with you always, till the very ends of the age. See, what I want you to appreciate here is that this commission is really just Jesus calling us to be, to live out who we are, to be the royal priesthood that we have been made in Christ. You see, as we think about engaging in mission, we don't do it just because we're commanded, though we are commanded, but we do it because that's who we are. That's what it is to be God's people. We are blessed with the privilege of being a mediator between God and those who don't know him. We're a representative of God. Last weekend, I took my son to the uh, open day at Trinity Grammar School in, in Summerhill. Possibly, if they think I'm clergy and give me a discount, then my son might go there. It's quite an impressive school. Did anyone go to Trinity? No? Anyone? So we drove into the car park, right? And when we came out of the car, we wandered up, and there was a nice young man, year 12 student, in his you know, uniform, tie, looking very well-dressed, and, you know, oh, good morning, sir, you're here for the open day? Yes, yes. And he introduced himself and asked my name and asked my son's name and then engaged us in polite conversation and said, oh, come with me, I'll take you to where you have to meet, and showed me up the stairs and talked glowingly about the school and, you know, went up and then we went to the open day. Now, that young man was an ambassador for the school. He was a representative for the school. Right? When I met him, I was left with this, wow, I want my son to be like that kind of feeling. We're like that in a sense for God. We, we represent God in the world. The way that we relate to people helps them know what God is like. It's an amazing purpose to live for. It's far above any job or title or role you might have. And in fact, no matter what job you may have, no matter where you're working, whether you're a teacher or a physio or a mechanic or an electrician or a whatever, in every context you are part of God's royal priesthood. But particularly when we are together, we are a priesthood. We are God's community pointing people to Jesus. Now one of the amazing things I think about this image of the church is that it's one that becomes completely irrelevant on the day that Jesus returns. So when we are currently God's temple, right? We, we are the dwelling place of God. We enjoy God's presence. But when Jesus returns, that will, we will still enjoy God's presence. In fact, even better. We will be an even better temple, in a sense, in the new creation. 
And we are Christ's body, the way that we relate to one another. Uh, when Jesus returns, that will continue, but even better. Our sin will be perfected. If God's goal for us was just to be a temple and a body, then as soon as we became Christians, he could whisk us off to heaven and it would be perfect. But the role of priesthood will cease when Jesus returns. It's a role that we can only fulfill during these days of mission. We can mediate between God and those who don't know him only until Jesus returns. And then we will no longer have this role. You see, this is the time for mission. The time for pointing people to God. So how do we do that? Well, Peter highlights two ways. He says we do it through our deeds and through our words. We represent God through our deeds and through our words. Let's think about deeds first. We see this in verse uh, 12, 11 and 12. He says, I, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now that word pagans is actually the word for nations. Live such good lives among the nations that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, we are called to live good lives, to be God's holy nation, just as it said earlier, so that people might see how we live and glorify God. That phrase of glorify God on the day he visits us has this uh, idea of salvation, of being part of the community that brings glory to God. And so that's why uh, Peter is constantly highlighting the need for us to be God's holy nation. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, uh, He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. See, who we, how we live, what we do, impacts the people around us. Our good deeds help people see God. And so we should show kindness because God has shown kindness to us, but also because then people will see God's kindness. We show love to people because God has shown love to us, but also then people will see God's love. We have compassion on those in need because God showed compassion to us, but also because then people will see God's compassion. And Peter's expectation is that as we do this, people will notice. So in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, uh, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who gives you the reason for the hope that you have. People will see our hope. People will notice our hope and ask us about it because we live differently. Now, Christians have always lived differently. In the early centuries, Christians were noted for doing things that no one else did. One of the classic examples is that in those days, when uh, if a baby was born that wasn't wanted, it was literally thrown on the rubbish heap. So Christians would go around and collect these babies that had been thrown out, and they would raise them as their own. 
When plague came to communities, uh, the typical practice was for everyone to leave their sick relatives and run away because they didn't want to die of plague as well. But Christians wouldn't do that. They would stay. They would show compassion not only to their own family but also to family members of non-Christians because they knew God's love. And this life of good deeds impacted the world. People took notice and they asked questions. Now, there are lots of amazing ways we can do this today. Uh, Being someone who loves coffee, I particularly like this one. This lady is a coffee grower. She lives in Laos. There are a number of uh, Christian workers in Southeast Asia who who have gone there to set up coffee businesses as a way of showing God's love to people in the community. You see, because the way they do their business is different to everyone else. They help the farmers to get a good crop. They they teach them what it is to grow good beans and they always give them a fair price. They buy their whole crop, not just the best bits. And they employ people who might not be the best employees. So they're doing what's called business as mission. They're running their businesses in ways that point to Jesus. And it has an impact. People notice this. How are you doing this in Bankstown? How are you living out as God's priesthood, demonstrating the good news of the gospel in the way that you show God's love and compassion and care for the community? I'm sure there are lots of ways, and we'll have opportunity to think about it a bit more later. Because that's what it means to be God's royal priesthood. We live in ways that are distinctive, that show God's love and patience and humility. And Peter's hope is that this will give opportunity for us to not only display the gospel, if you like, but to declare the gospel. Not just with our deeds, but with our words. So he speaks of that in verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God has called us out of darkness. God has shown us his mercy. God has made us his people. And so we use our words to help people understand that. I took a team of students a number of years ago to Jordan, and I can't speak Arabic, but, um, but learnt a few phrases while I was there. And one that really struck me, one that I heard over and over again, was Alhamdulillah. So almost at the end of every greeting, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Alhamdulillah. Isn't it a beautiful day? Yes, it is, Alhamdulillah. Now, what does it mean? It means praise and glory to God. Now, these people are Muslims. They don't know the mercy and grace that we have received in Christ. And yet on their lips all the time is praise and mercy, praise and glory to God, praise and glory to God. They use their lips to declare God's praise. We know God's grace even more. How might we use our lips to declare the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light? You might have heard the phrase that apparently Francis of Assisi said, I don't think he did, but... 
Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard this phrase? It's nice, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I can go out and preach the gospel and keep my mouth shut. Problem is, it's nonsense. You can't. It's like saying, give me your phone number, and if necessary, use numbers. The gospel is a message, right? It's something that can only be understood if you hear it explained. You can see things that might make you go, wow, that's different. But if you're really going to understand the gospel, you need somebody to tell you. You need to use your words. You need to not just display the gospel, you must declare the gospel. Now, it was a great encouragement to have Grant here yesterday. And and wasn't it helpful just to hear simple ways of engaging with people and showing people love, I guess just through questions, that can give opportunity then to declare the gospel. I'm sh- and I've also been really encouraged just to hear the way that you talk amongst yourselves about this view outwards beyond your community, thinking about how can we share Jesus with people, how can we be pointing people to Jesus. And I hope that you will continue to do that more and more. And I think that uh, God, me, God, me, that's that's a great framework. I think another thing that's good to have in your mind is just can you tell your story simply? Are you able to just tell people the difference Jesus makes in your life? Now, I think it's helpful. Sometimes we think I've got to have a testimony prepared. And in a sense, it's good to know your story, how you became a Christian. But sometimes we can get caught out and end up giving a 15-minute monologue that makes our you know, person we're talking to, not off. How has Jesus impacted your life? For me, as I shared my story with you yesterday, it was about acceptance. That in Christ I am accepted fully. What does it mean for you to be known by Christ? Is it freedom from shame? Is it that you're confident in your future, that you don't have to worry? How can you just share that with people? And you can have opportunities to just share that uh, in 30 seconds. You can share how Jesus is impacting you before people have even realised you've started talking about Jesus. It's a great way to just declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, we can be scared to do that, but let me encourage you that our world is not as hostile as sometimes we're led to believe. Let me just share with you a couple of statistics. There's some research done in the last couple of years um, that's just looked at Australians. This was, this was done earlier this year um, by the National Church Life Survey. Um, they basically asked, which of these statements come closest to your belief in God? There's a personal God, there's some sort of spiritual life force, I don't really know, I don't really think there's any sort of God or life force. Now, what's interesting about this is that more than half the people in Australia, more than half the population, either believe there is a personal God or there is some sort of spirit or life force. More than half of the people have some idea of a spiritual world. Another quarter just say, I don't know. The number of people who say there isn't a God is actually quite small. And so that means there's opportunity to engage with people, to just to ask that question of, do you think there's a God? What do you believe about God? And also they found that uh, there's a surprisingly large proportion of people who are positive towards Christianity. 
So the top little green bit, I consider myself a Christian, 38% of Australians call themselves Christians, right? Now, we know that many of them don't fully appreciate the good news of Jesus, but there's room to engage with them. Another 24% are warm towards Christianity. They believe much of it. They agree with the ethics. 12% are kind of neutral. And then about a quarter are actually cool. I guess you would say a bit more hostile towards Christianity. But that means nearly three quarters of Australians have a kind of generally positive view of Christianity. Just hear that as encouragement. There are many people that you will be able to engage with. And also, just to think about Bankstown briefly, Bankstown is a phenomenally diverse place, right, as you guys know. I was surprised to see that the highest proportion was Vietnamese. That surprised me a little bit. I would have thought it was, was maybe Middle Eastern. But nearly 20% Vietnamese, then Lebanese, 10% Chinese. We have a diverse community, so lots and lots of different perspectives on the world. And one of the wonderful things about engaging with people from non-Anglo backgrounds is that they're generally a little more spiritually open than Anglos. And when it comes to religion, nearly a third Muslims. Now, some people might find that a bit scary, but, you know, Muslims love talking about God. They love talking about God. So there's great opportunities there to just engage people in conversation. I have a friend who was a, a missionary in, um, in the Middle East somewhere, and, uh, and he said one of the best ways to start conversations with people there so this is a 99.9% you know, Muslim country, was to say, so how do you think you'll go on Judgment Day? Now, you wouldn't start a conversation that way with most Anglo-Australians, but it's part of their worldview. There are great opportunities to declare the praises of God with our lips. But I want to just talk briefly about the world, because the situation outside of Australia is not so rosy. This is the world population. Oh, that was supposed to appear one at a time. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, the world, we can break into about three groups, right? There's two and a half billion Christians. There's about 2.9 billion people who are not Christians, but who live in contexts where there are Christians, where there are Bibles, where they have access to Christianity, access to the gospel. But over 2 billion people in the world live in places where they're not Christians and they just don't have any access at all. But sadly, this is the place where the smallest proportion of missionaries go. These are the places where missionaries are needed. 2.1 billion people with 12,000 missionaries serving there. There's a huge need for us to be living as God's priesthood by extending his priesthood into places where Christ is not represented. Making the gospel known there. Just to show it another way, this is where the non-Christian population are in the world. You can see lots in Asia. This is where the missionaries are. Now, if you excuse my bad picture editing and see the overlay, sadly, we're not sending very many missionaries to places where there is the greatest need. Now, I'm super encouraged to hear that you guys are actively supporting people working in that part of the world. Dan and Mel, yet and John and Beck Yo, and Carrie and Heidi when they work out where they need to be. That's wonderful. 
Let me just encourage you and recognise that that's part of what it means to be God's priesthood. To be actively involved in seeing God's message taken to these people who cannot hear him unless people go and live amongst them and share God's word with them. We have been so blessed by God. We have been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. We can live out the gospel in our deeds and in our words. Display the gospel and declare the gospel. Show it and share it. And I'm excited to see the desire that you guys have to do that. And we're going to think about how we might do that in a minute. But let me just finish by reflecting, I guess, on all three of our talks. We are blessed by God to be part of his temple, his body, and his priesthood. To relate to God, to relate to one another, to relate to the world. I think there's a danger that sometimes we have to focus too much on one or the other of those images, in a sense. For us, church, to be all about just connecting with God, that that's the only thing that matters. Or for church to only be about connecting with each other, fellowship and building one another up. Or sometimes I think church can even get too focused on just reaching outsiders and not do enough to build up people within us. We need to keep these three dimensions all together if we're to truly be what God has called us to be. Now, praise God for uh, his word that guides us and for, as we saw yesterday, uh, pastors and teachers who help to equip us for his work. I pray that you will continue to grow to learn what it means to be his temple, his body, and his priesthood, displaying and declaring his word in Bankstown and beyond. Let me pray and then we're going to have some discussion groups. Father God, we thank you that you have called us to yourself, that you have graciously uh, made us your people. Lord, we pray that you will help that to sink deep into our understanding of ourselves. Pray that our identity might be shaped for, by what you have done for us and that we will be people who enjoy your presence, enjoy our relationship with you together. Pray that we will be people who love and support and encourage and serve one another as we grow up to maturity. And that we might be people who declare your word and display your truth in the way that we relate to those who don't know you. Help us, Lord, to be your people, serving your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.